I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, as we make our way through the book of Genesis, considering the life of Jacob and considering his journey uh, that he has been taking uh, back to the land of Canaan. We come now to chapter 35, and I'd like to read to us the first 15 verses of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below, below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from, the, from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would comfort us with your gospel, and that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, summer is nearing an end. And of course, summer is the time when millions of Americans get in their cars and go on a road trip. And if you happen to do that uh, this summer, you'll notice that there are two different types of people who go on road trips. There are those people for whom the journey is the most important part. And so they will freely stop any time they want, uh, stop to take a picture here or uh, go off to a, a roadside attraction there. And for them, it really doesn't matter getting to the destination, but it's the journey that matters. And then there's the other type of people, the people uh, in the category in which I fall in, where it is the destination that, it, that matters, and making good time. 
And so you don't stop. You keep going. Even if, even after, if you have to use the restroom, you continue on. You try to make it at least another 10 miles before you stop. Well, in our uh, passage today, Jacob finally finishes a long journey. He began his journey many years before as the Lord told him to leave Padam Aran and to return to the land of Canaan. And we saw him, through many twists and turns, finally arrive back in the land of Canaan at the end of chapter 33, uh, where he safely arrived and, and uh, uh, there with his family. And yet we noticed there that he did not continue on in his journey. You see, he stopped as soon as he got to Shechem. He bought land and he settled near that city. But you see, back in chapter 28, before he had left on his journey, before he left the land of Canaan, he swore a vow to God who had appeared to him back in chapter 28. And he said, if God will be with me, if he will protect me and return me here, then he swore that he would return to Bethel and there build an altar to the Lord. Scripture warns us that it is better not to vow at all than to vow and not make good on that vow. And it seems as if Jacob's failure to make good on that vow, to continue on his journey and finally finish that journey at Bethel, sadly uh, led to a chain of events where we saw last week where his daughter Dinah was defiled by the prince of the land and also the horrific actions of his sons in response to that. See, chapter 34 ends once again with Jacob in fear of his life as he anticipates what the surrounding nations will do as a result of what his sons had done. And so uh, we want to notice at this point, Jacob is not doing very well spiritually. Because of his failure, because of his inaction, sadly, his, uh, his family had uh, incurred much guilt and a stain of sin. And it is at this point, in verse 1 of our passage that the Lord intervenes. The Lord intervenes and appears to Jacob and tells him, commands him, to complete his journey. Go up to Bethel as he, as he swore he would do, and there make an altar to God to worship him. He tells him in verse 1, arise, go up to Bethel. You notice the, the, the phraseology, to go up. Now Bethel is some 1,000 feet higher in elevation than Shechem. But I think there's more to it than just the physical descent, or, or sorry, physical ascent that Jacob would need to make. For his physical ascent will now mark a spiritual ascent for Jacob as he begins his pilgrimage to worship the Lord. We see this repeated later on in scripture when the Lord would choose Jerusalem to be the place where his temple would be, where his name would dwell, where the people of God would go. No matter where you are coming from in the world, if you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. That's how scripture always refers to it, going up to worship the Lord. And I think the same thing is, is true here, where the Lord now gives Jacob a call to worship. Come up to Bethel, to this place where he had made his name known, to the place where he had revealed himself to him, to worship him there. And you'll notice when he calls him to this worship, he references and reminds Jacob of the main purpose for which he had fled in the first place. He says, when I appeared to you, when God appeared to you, when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. You see, Jacob once again is reminded of his sinful actions, 
of the deception that he engaged in in order to steal the blessing from his brother and the consequences of those actions, namely that he would have to flee from his wrath. And so as the Lord reminds Jacob not only of what he had done, of his sinful past, he also implicitly reminds him of his faithfulness to him. You see, God had appeared to him back in chapter 28 before he left, and the Lord had been faithful to him, keeping him safely in his journey, and now he calls him to make good on that vow to to render thanks unto the Lord for his faithfulness to him. As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I think that is most true here of our passage today, as the Lord is faithful to call Jacob to worship him and to render thanks unto him. And so Jacob, in response, takes responsibility not only for himself, but also all those for whom he had spiritual oversight. Notice in verse 2, Jacob addresses his household and all who were with him. Notice that the Lord calls Jacob personally, but then Jacob extends that call to his entire household. He, he tells them all now uh, to... to, uh, to uh, Join with him in worship of God. Jacob is like uh, Joseph later on in redemptive history as he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's Jacob's intention here as he calls his entire household to put away the foreign gods. You'll notice that he mentions these foreign gods and that shouldn't necessarily surprise us here. That is the presence of idols in the covenant community. Because after all, we've been told back in chapter 31, when Jacob first left Padamaran, remember Rachel had stolen the household gods from her father. And so the fact that Rachel had stolen them at least gives us some suggestion that perhaps there were others in the community who had taken gods with them from Padamaran, who had taken the idols. Perhaps these were, as I said, idols taken from Padamaran. Or perhaps these were idols that were acquired during their time in Canaan. But regardless of where they were uh, brought from, Jacob commands his family now to give exclusive loyalty to God alone. As the Lord later on will make a covenant with the Israelites, and the first commandment he gives to them is, you shall have no other gods before me. So Jacob reiterates that that commandment, and he says that they should worship the living and true God alone. But not only were they to get rid of their idols, but they were also to undergo a, a cleansing ritual. Notice he says, purify yourselves, change your garments. This, this would entail, no doubt, a, a washing ceremony and a changing of clothes. You see, during their time in Shechem, The family, through their sinful actions, had defiled themselves. They were in need uh, uh, to be, they were, they needed to be cleansed of their sinful acts. And the the outward and external washing, the washing and changing of of the clothes, uh, were to reflect the internal washing and cleansing from their sins. This is repeated throughout scripture, this image of having new clean clothes being given to you as a symbol of your sins being washed away. Perhaps most uh, vividly, this is seen in Zechariah chapter 3, where the prophet Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest, who is standing before God in a courtroom setting, and his high priestly garments are soiled and defiled and filthy. 
And there Satan is standing there accusing him for being unworthy. And yet Zechariah hears the angel give a command. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, I, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This idea of the high priest uh, uh, for whom the clothing really made the man. It was the high priestly garments that set this man apart, and yet they were filthy. The Lord gives him new clothing, pure vestments, pure garments, making him holy so that he can enter in to the presence of God. And ultimately, this is true of each and every one of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, as we see in Revelation chapter 7. The host of those who have been redeemed, we read that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so here, this image of Jacob and his family uh, uh, literally washing themselves and changing their garments is a picture of the forgiveness of sins, which they could have through faith in Christ Jesus. But there may be more to this changing of clothes than just a, a, a ceremony, a ritual a ceremony. When we, when we consider that perhaps uh, where they got these clothes. Keep in mind, uh, Jacob's brothers had just defeated the city of Shechem. And we read there in chapter 34 that they plundered the city of Shechem. Taking every single thing that belonged to the men of the city whom they had killed. And so perhaps those clothes that they were wearing were clothes that were stolen, plundered through this unjust Uh, uh, defeat of the city. Perhaps the same might even be said of those gold earrings that we read that they give uh, uh, to Jacob. In other words, perhaps what they had there, what they were setting aside and giving up was in effect dirty money. It was stained with sin because it was taken through unjust actions. So Jacob commands his family to put away and then repeating the command of the Lord, and yet now, in the plural, to his whole family, he says, let us arise and go up and worship the Lord. He calls them all now to go together with him to render thanks and worship to their faithful and forgiving covenant God. And in response, we read that his family complies. They take their foreign gods, the idols that they had in their possession, and they give them over to Jacob. Uh, They they give over the gold earrings and and they change their clothes and they wash themselves and put on new garments. And Jacob takes those gods and he hides them underneath uh, a tree. Uh, Perhaps another way of translating that is he dumped them underneath the tree. It's interesting if indeed uh, those household gods that Rachel had stolen from from her father Laban, that she had hidden in the camel's saddle as her father was looking around inside of her tent for them, have finally now been hidden for good underneath a, a, underneath a tree, never to be found again. Well, having done all of those things, they set off on their journey to go up to Bethel. And keep in mind that travel in the ancient world was never a safe thing. You were always at risk of, of being attacked you were always at risk of thieves and other things that could, that, that, that could come your way. And yet, because of the actions, the recent actions of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who had defeated the entire city of Shechem and made themselves, as, as Jacob said, you have made me a stench to the inhabitants of the land. 
Simeon and Levi have made matters only worse. You see, Jacob was afraid of what the other uh, surrounding nations would do in retaliation for their heinous uh, uh, actions. And so for Jacob to set off on this journey was a step of faith. Would he be safe? Would the Lord protect him, even though his sons had made matters worse? Well, we see in response, uh, as an answer to prayer, as a response to Jacob's fears in verse 5, that as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities so that none of the cities that they passed by came out to attack them. Here, this divinely inspired fear is sent upon the cities, ensuring safe passage for the covenant community so that no one even thinks of touching them because they're too afraid. It's interesting, we'll see the same thing happen again when the Israelites come back to the land of Canaan. As Joshua takes them in, we, we read uh, the very first city that they attack, the city of Jericho. Rahab the harlot testifies to this fear that they had of the people of God. She talks about how they had heard about how the Lord had dried up the water of the Red Sea and, and what they had done to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And she says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. You see here, Jacob and his family foreshadow or picture what will later happen when the Israelites enter into the land to take conquest of the land. Is that fear that comes upon all the cities so that none would dare come upon them. And so having safe, in, uh, having safe passage, we read that Jacob arrives at his destination in verse 6. But you'll notice what it is called uh, first. It is called Luz, that is Bethel. You'll notice here, uh, and keep in mind, back in chapter 28, when Jacob first came to Bethel, before we were told the name of the city, before it was disclosed to us that it in fact was the Canaanite city of Luz, we were told that Jacob named it Bethel. And yet here in this passage, it is called by its old name first before Jacob renames it. And I think that's significant here. That is being called its old name so that it can be renamed again. I think the same thing is true, and as we'll see, of Jacob himself. Even Jacob will be renamed Again, a second time as this place is now going to be reinfused with yet a new meaning as the Lord reappears to Jacob. And so Jacob, in response to the call of worship that God gave to him, he builds an altar, uh, giving thanks to the Lord, and he calls the name of the place El Bethel. Now, keep in mind, Bethel means the house of God. And so here he names it El, or that is the God of Bethel, the God of the house of God. And so if he originally named it after the, if he named the place where God appeared to him, now he names it after the God who had appeared to him and the God who had been faithful to keep him safe in all of his journeys, who, who protected him and answered in him in his time of distress. Now he gives thanks to that God by naming the place after him. And yet we find in verse 8, inserted between Jacob's act of worship that we read of in verse 7 and the Lord's response, which takes place in verse 9. In verse 8, we have this little inserted obituary 
this little notice of the fact that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, had died. And we might wonder why. And commentators are puzzled by this insertion, seemingly right smack dab in the middle of Jacob's worship and the Lord's response, is this obituary of the fact that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, had died. Further, keep in mind that while we, were, we are told in the book of Genesis of the death and burial of all the other main wives of the patriarchs, whether it be Sarah or of Rachel or Leah, keep in mind we are never told of the death of Rebecca. And yet we are told of the death of her nurse, her nurse who had accompanied her from Padamaran, who was mentioned but not named all the way back in chapter 24 when Abraham's servant had gone to get Rebecca to be a bride for Isaac. And so why is it that, number one, uh, Rebecca's death is not mentioned, but her nurse's is, and number two, why is that inserted right here? Well, keep in mind, we have already been uh, reminded twice of the reason for Jacob's flight from Canaan. That's been said in verse 1, when you fled from your brother Esau. And in verse 7, again, when uh, when he fled from his brother. We've been reminded of the main reason for why Jacob had to flee in the first place. That is his sinful, deceptive act. And keep in mind, even though Jacob was the one who committed the deception, it was Rebecca, his mother, who masterminded it all. She was the one who came up with the idea in the first place. And she was also the one who told Jacob to flee from the wrath of his brother Esau, to go to Padam Aram to, to her brother Laban. And when she told Jacob to do that in the first place, back in chapter 27 she seemed to have a pretty rosy prediction. She said, go there, stay a few days, and tell your brother Esau forgets about what you had done for him, and then I will sin for you, and you will come back. See, she had every intention to see her son again. And yet here, oh, and uh, uh, when Jacob left at that point in chapter, uh, in chapter 27, we never read of Rebekah again. She vanishes from the history of Genesis. She's never mentioned. And so what are we to make of this? Well, I think the fact that we never read of her again, the fact that the only time she's mentioned again is her burial in chapter, or is uh, the fact that she has been buried uh, in the cave of Machpelah, is that we see here an implicit condemnation of her actions. See, Jacob has already been condemned and, and taught the long, hard lesson that his deception will get him nowhere. But the fact that Rebekah basically vanishes from the history of Genesis also is a condemnation of her actions. And the fact that it is not mentioned, we are left to assume that Rebekah never saw her beloved son again, but that she had died prior to Jacob's return. And that, as we do know for sure, she, ha- she was buried in the cave of Machpelah, the same place where Sarah had been buried, where Abraham was buried, and ultimately Isaac and and Jacob and Leah would be buried. But the fact that she died and she was buried in that cave signifies that she died in faith, trusting that she would inherit the heavenly homeland, not because of her works, but ultimately because of the grace of God. 
And I think that grace of God is highlighted once again in our passage as we see the Lord appear to Jacob again in verse 9. Now keep in mind, in verse 9, when God appears to Jacob, this is not a flashback to the time when he first arrived in Canaan. But this is what happened again when Jacob finally finished that journey in Bethel. And yet, we, and yet notice what Scripture says there. Look in verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from where? From Padan Aram. Now, is this true? Did Jacob arrive, just arrive from Padan Aram? Well, no. We know for sure that he had just come from Shechem, where he had spent a significant amount of time. And even before that, he stayed in Sukkoth before on the other side of the Jordan. And yet it seems as if Scripture here, by, by uh, not mentioning those locations, it seems as if Scripture deliberately ignores that leg of the journey. It is written as if Jacob had come directly from Padan Aram and gone straight to Bethel, his final destination. That entire leg of the journey where he had taken a detour in Sukkoth and where he had spent time in Shechem and the the whole ensuing debacle as a result of his time there, all of that is done away with. It's as if it didn't happen. And I think ultimately that is what God does for each and every one of us and our sinful actions. Scripture speaks of of God blotting out our sins. As, As David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. It speaks of God removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. And it seems as if that is what God is doing here with Jacob. As he appears to him and once again blesses him. See, nothing so far in, this, in, in, in the book of Genesis so far uh, should lead us to believe that Jacob deserves a blessing. This is a picture of grace. Not only is this unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. Jacob hasn't done anything to earn God's blessing. On the contrary, he's done everything uh, to demerit that blessing. And yet God here appears to him, treats him as if he had, had made a straight journey to Bethel, and blesses him. And when he does bless him, that we, as we see the form of that blessing in verse 10, once again, it comes in the form of a name change. He changes his name again. He gets a new identity. Now, you may, you may recall, well, wait a minute. Didn't he already change his name? And the answer is yes, he did. Back in chapter 32, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, with God himself, uh, and he He holds on to him tenaciously, and he begs for a blessing. I will not let go until you bless me. The form of the blessing came in the name change. He said, what is your name? And he said, it's Jacob, which means deceiver. And he says, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. That is, God fights, uh, alluding to the fact that it would be God who fights on his behalf. And yet... Jacob is still called Jacob again. 
He doesn't keep that name Israel in the same way that Abraham kept his new name or Sarah kept her new name. He's continually called Jacob, and it goes back and forth where he's called Jacob and Israel. As I said before, I think this is a picture of our sanctification. If Abraham was a picture of justification by faith, that once and for all definitive declaration by God that we are righteous in his sight, Jacob is a picture of our sanctification that requires continual reminders. We need to be continually reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus, of that new identity, of the fact that we are new creatures in him. And so, so often in scripture, God sounds like a broken record. He has to repeat himself time and time again as he even has to rename him again to remind him of who he really is. And ultimately, that's what we need every single week as we gather here. To hear from God's word, we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus. As we read in Colossians chapter 3, our old man has been put to death. And we are new creatures in Christ. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're a new creature. Remember that you're a new creature and act like you're a new creature. Consider yourself a new creature because you are a new creature. You need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. Jacob needed to be reminded of that as the Lord appears to him, blesses him, and changes his name again. And then he goes on to repeat the promises that he had given to him previously. Again, God sounds like a broken record as as he he, uh, tells him to be fruitful and multiply. And he gives these promises to him again. Why? Because we we so easily forget We need to be reminded of the promises of the gospel. And that is indeed what these promises are. Keep in mind, when we read these uh, these often repeated promises of God, keep in mind that the promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are nothing more than the promise of the new creation. The new humanity dwelling in a new heavens and new earth with God himself. That's what God is getting at here when he tells him to be fruitful and multiply. He speaks of a nation and a company of nations that will come from him and kings coming from his own body. Here the Lord is reiterating and even expanding upon the covenant promises given to Jacob. This is the fullest and most expansive form of promises that Jacob ever receives in the book of Genesis. And so we'll we'll highlight some of the some of the unique expanded, expanded features in conclusion. He tells him to be fruitful and multiply. This oft-repeated command, which also is, is a blessing, in that when God tells somebody to be fruitful and multiply, implicit is the ability to be fruitful and multiply. He gave that blessing to Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. And he gives it again to Jacob here as the head of a new creation. You see, God is pleased not just with a few people, but with many. You see, the Lord wants his creation to flourish and grow. He desires his new creation to grow more and more. And so he said that originally to Abraham, who at the time was childless. He said it again to Isaac, who had twins. 
And now he says it to Jacob, who very shortly will have 12 sons. And, and as, as we trace redemptive history, we're going to see that multiplication grow and expand so that by, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are in an innumerable force of people that even Pharaoh is afraid of. And he goes on to speak of a company of nations, not just one nation, but a diversity of nations. You see, God loves diversity. He loves ethnic di- diversity. And he promises that coming from Jacob, And part of this new humanity will be not just one nation, but a company of nations. Now, this is interesting to highlight here, because God had already said something very similar to Abraham, that many nations would come from him. And we see that fulfilled in the fact that he had not only Isaac, but also Ishmael, who himself would become a nation, and also uh, descendants from, uh, from his wife Keturah, they would become nations. And so literally many nations came from Father Abraham. We see the same thing with Isaac, who has twins, both of whom become the head of a mighty nation, Israel and Edom. But here God is speaking to Jacob, for who, who will have 12 sons, whose 12 sons will be the tribes of one nation. Only one physical nation will come from Jacob. Only one nation can claim Jacob as, as their physical father according to the flesh. And yet God tells Jacob, that a company, a company of nations, a whole multitude of nations will be coming from him. I think ultimately this is not fulfilled literally, physically, but it's fulfilled truly and spiritually with the inclusion of all of us Gentiles into the one people of God. And perhaps that's most vividly portrayed in the book of Revelation as John sees two different visions which represent the same exact thing. The first vision he receives is a vision of 144,000 of the tribe of Israel. 12,000 from every tribe that are listed. But then he turns around and he sees the same exact thing, and yet not in a symbolic numerical form, but in its literal form. He sees a vast multitude, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. See, that is the nation of Israel. People from every tribe, tongue, uh, and, and language of people all coming from Jacob because we have the same, same faith as Jacob uh, and thus are the uh, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes on to promise the kings will come from his own body, uh, literally from his own loins, here promising him a dynasty. This very same promise is repeated in 2 Samuel 7. As the Lord tells David, I will raise your offspring up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Not only will God, uh, does God promise Jacob a people, but he also promises him a place, as he reiterates the promise of the land that, that this great and diverse people will reside in, in verse 12. Notice in verse 12, he, he swears that he, has, that he will give to Jacob the same land that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac. And here he mentions now four generations. I had given it to Abraham. I've given it to Isaac. I will give it to you, and I will give it to your offspring after you. And here is the key. All of these promises, which were given to Abraham, 
repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob, are also given to his offspring. And whenever we come across that word offspring, we need to keep in mind that that word could either be plural or it could be singular depending on the context. And the primary context here, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, is that it's singular. He says it it does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. See, that's why all of these things can happen in the first place. That's why in our passage we see Jacob receive a a call to worship at one of the lowest points of his spiritual life. And instead of wrath, he he receives mercy. In the place of fear, he is given hope. He receives a blessing when he really deserved a curse. And it's only because of the perfect obedience and satisfaction of his offspring, Jesus Christ, to whom these promises are given. As Paul tells us previously in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And praise God for the work of Jesus Christ, who redeemed his father Jacob, who redeemed his father Isaac, who redeemed his father Abraham, and all of us who, like them, have faith in Christ in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. Amen.